Hi.
Good evening and welcome to First Say Chats by Dr. G. I am Dr. Adana Grandison, a physician in Barbados and your hostess for this evening. First Say Chats by Dr. G is a live podcast that provides listeners with a unique opportunity to not only hear complicated medical conditions explained, but also clarify any misunderstandings you may have about that condition. After all, a medically aware and educated patient is an empowered patient. This evening, our episode is entitled Different Strokes for Different Folks. And our guest is Dr. Linda Williams. Dr. Williams graduated in medicine from the University of the West Indies. She also holds a master's in epidemiology from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Dr. Williams was the clinical director of the Barbados National Cancer Study from 2004 to 2007 and the co-principal investigator of the Cancer Survival Study, both collaborative studies of the Chronic Disease Research Center, UE. While at CDRC, she assisted with the establishment of the Barbados National Registry for Chronic Non-Communicable Diseases. She has also been an associate lecturer in the Masters of Public Health at the University of the West Indies. Dr. Williams runs a general family practice with a special interest in palliative care, diabetes, cancer, and rheumatic diseases. She still undertakes research in chronic diseases and has a member and has been a member of the Caribbean Coalition since 2011. Good evening and welcome, Dr. Williams. Good evening, Adana. Can you hear me well? Yes, I can. Can everyone hear Dr. Williams nice and clearly? Yes, Dr. Williams. So let's get right to it. So this evening is called Different Strokes for Different Folks. And I decided to put a bit of a play upon the words simply because we tend to think about stroke in one form or in one way, but a stroke really doesn't present like that. But before we go there, tell let's tell our audience exactly what is a stroke. We call it differently in medicine, but take it away. Okay, so a stroke, is, is this topic is really very important and I thank you for inviting me, uh, Dr. Grandison, to talk about it today because stroke is the second highest cause of mortality or death worldwide and also the second highest cause of disability and right here in Barbados um, it is our second highest cause of mortality as well so stroke is first of all um, a acute neurological injury that's what we call it of the brain okay so just before I go into exactly what a stroke is and what does acute neurological injury mean, let me just tell you a little bit about the brain and how it functions. And then that will help us to understand how a stroke comes about. So the brain, as we all know, is the master organ. It is full of neurons and glial cells and synapses and all those nerves um, that function throughout the body receive signals from the brain electronically and that's how all the body's functions are controlled. The brain has a blood supply just like every other organ of the body. 
and that blood supply consists of blood vessels called arteries which take blood to the brain and supply blood sugar which we use as energy so the brain burns your blood sugar in order to have energy for its cells and it also supplies oxygen to the brain so that's what the arteries do they carry blood to the brain and then you have veins that take blood away from the brain so a stroke has to do with the blood vessels of the brain and this acute neurological injury of the brain has to do with what occurs in those blood vessels um, and results in a loss of function of the brain cells. So strokes are of two main types. You have strokes that are ischemic and strokes that are hemorrhagic. So I just want you to remember those two categories, strokes that are ischemic strokes and strokes that are hemorrhagic strokes. The ischemic stroke is the majority of all strokes. That makes up 80% of all strokes. And that is when there is decreased blood supply to an area of the brain. So you have all these different blood vessels supplying different areas of the brain. You have different parts of the brain that control different parts of the body. So according to which area um, has a decreased blood supply, then you will get the different symptoms of a stroke depending on the area that is supplied by that blood vessel. So in ischemic strokes, this is the majority of strokes, as I said, you can have a decreased blood supply and that may be due to either a clot um, or decreased blood in the arteries, which we call hypoperfusion. So then the second type of stroke, which is rarer, is called a hemorrhagic stroke. And that's almost the opposite of ischemic stroke because ischemic stroke is decreased blood supply to an area of bleeding and hemorrhagic stroke is too much blood. So you have a bleed in an area of the brain. So the blood vessel has been uh, interrupted and now there's a blood clot in an area of the brain. So that's a hemorrhagic stroke. And those carry generally a poorer prognosis than the ischemic stroke. So that's basically what a stroke is. It is an acute neurological injury resulting from a loss of blood supply to an area of the brain. Okay, good. So sometimes we hear about the term a mini stroke. Or oh, I didn't have a real stroke. I just had a mini stroke. Exactly what is a mini stroke? Okay. Or people say I had a Passover. A Passover. Yes, please. Right. So, so basically, when we're talking about that, we're talking about the ischemic type stroke. So the ischemic type stroke is when you have a loss of blood to an area. And this loss of blood to the area may be caused by an obstruction of the blood vessel in the area. And the main source of that obstruction is a narrowing of the artery, which we call arteriosclerosis or atherosclerosis. Right, And that is the main factor that causes the narrowing of the vessel. So when you have those hardened arteries, which are now taken up with what we call plaque, the, the, so the area through which the blood is allowed to come is narrowed because there is a 
the obstruction made up of cholesterol and thick vessel wall and so on. And that's called plaque. So when this narrow, narrow um, area exists for the blood to pass through, then suddenly one day that can shut off with a small clot and that's called a thrombotic type of ischemic stroke. So when people mm-hmm. say that they have a Passover, it is usually because there was a small clot formed, okay, in the area that is supplied by that blood vessel. And like most clots do, eventually that clot bursts itself or it lyses. And if that happens in less than 24 hours, it's an arbitrary cutoff, the 24 hours. We call it a transient ischemic attack. Sometimes it may last only a few hours. So a person may have symptoms of a stroke and within four to six hours, the, the, the clot starts to lice or burst on its own and the person starts to return to normal. And that's what you call a transient ischemic attack or a mini stroke as people like to call it. The other type of ischemic stroke that's important is called an embolic type of stroke. So that means that somewhere in the body is forming clots and then those clots are shooting off and going up to the brain and they're blocking the blood vessel. So the most, the organ where that is most likely to come from is from the heart. And when the heart has an abnormal rhythm, then it allows a clot to form within the heart and it can shoot that um, clot right up to the brain and block off a blood vessel. So those people also can have what we call a transient ischemic attack or mini stroke because those little clots coming up block the blood vessel but then they lice they split they burst open on their own and allow the blood flow to go through again so those are the two subtypes of ischemic stroke both of which can result in a tia a transient we- ischemic attack good so you just said that the ischemic type stroke is as a result of plaque formation. So essentially, it's almost a similar picture to what we, what a person would have with a heart attack, correct? Because it's the same blockage of the vessels. One is happening in the heart. The other is actually happening at the level of the brain. Exactly. So it's, and it's the same underlying processes that result in that happening so a thrombotic stroke can occur a a thrombosis sorry can also occur in the vessels supplying the heart muscle okay and when a thrombosis occurs in those vessels it's called a heart attack when a thrombosis or a clot forms in the blood vessels supplying the brain it's called a stroke and what underlies that is like i said high cholesterol that causes the hardening of the arteries. But all of us have, to some extent, hardening of our arteries from the time we were two years old. If we did autopsies on little babies, you'd find that their arteries start to harden from the time they're, they're, they're starting to grow. So what makes that hardening of the arteries or arteriosclerosis significant in people or accelerated in people is then the non-communicable diseases like hypertension and diabetes and high cholesterol. They are what cause the hardening of the arteries to occur faster. And once you have that hardening of the arteries occurring faster, then you can either get blockages from the thrombosis in the brain or in the heart. 
Great. So you actually just led directly into what I wanted to talk about next. What puts a person at increased risk of having a stroke apart from those NCDs? Right. So the majority of strokes, as I said, are ischemic subtype strokes. Okay. So the NCDs or the non-communicable diseases that we talk about are the main, some of the main risk factors. So if you don't control your diabetes and you don't control your blood vessel, it affects the vessel wall and it causes it to get harder quicker. If you have high cholesterol, it also deposits in the vessel wall and it causes it to get narrow quicker. So those are the main things. But the embolic type stroke now, if a person has um, what we call a heart condition, some heart conditions like um, atrial fibrillation, where the heart is beating abnormally, then that abnormal heart rhythm can send off a, a blood clot to the brain. But there is another subtype of ischemic stroke that I didn't mention, and that's called systemic hypoperfusion. So that's when your blood is just not getting enough. So it's not a clot now. The, the brain is just not getting enough blood going to it. And that happens when people have a heart attack because the pump isn't working. So there's not enough blood going to the brain. So you can have a heart attack followed by a stroke and also heart failure. Again, the risk factors for heart attacks and heart disease and heart failure, yes, you can have it from um, uh, cardiac diseases like you know valve problems and so on. But the vast majority of our heart attacks and heart failures are going to come from, again, the type 2 diabetes and the hypertension. So those are the majority. But then there are some people, especially if you're younger people, that have strokes as well. So under the age of 45, we call that stroke in the young. So it's not only the hypertension and the diabetes and, and of course, obesity, which I didn't mention, but obesity is a risk factor for stroke independently. Um, but in the younger person now, we have to look for other things that might be causing the blood to be more sticky so the clots can form more easily. And those sorts of things, then they look for whether or not they have a genetic condition that results in some protein deficiencies like protein S and C deficiency, whether there's an antibody in the bud called antiphospholipid antibody. Um, also things like some medications can cause uh, increased risk of stroke, especially in young people. Those would be things that contain the female hormone estrogen. So like your hormone replacement therapy, oral contraceptive pills. So in young people, those are a risk factor for stroke, but also some treatments for cancer like tamoxifen and monoclonal antibody therapy. So those also increase the risk of stroke. If someone has a surgery or a trauma or they're on prolonged bed rest, they also can have a stroke. And that's usually the, the, the type of embolic stroke where they get a clot and that clot then breaks off and can travel up to the brain. So that's another risk factor. People who have sickle cell disease, cancer, um, pregnancy, um, and some types of kidney disease like nephrotic syndrome and so on, HIV, AIDS, and severe infection. So in younger people, those are, these are the causes that can occur. They can occur in anybody, 
But in younger people, we look for these other causes as well, um, because those um, could be risk factors for stroke. But the vast majority, and I want to stress, the vast majority of our strokes are caused by uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, high cholesterol, and obesity. Okay, great. So just enlighten us about what are some of the symptoms a person can experience if they're having a stroke. Right. So strokes show their effect by how much of the brain is affected and what part of the brain is affected. So how much of the brain is affected is determined by how long it takes the person to get treatment. Okay. So we have a saying called time is brain, right? So the longer it takes a person to get treated, the more they can have the symptoms of stroke. And what part of the brain is affected? So what part of the brain is supplied by that blood vessel will determine the symptoms of a stroke. In general, we tell people to, if you see someone with these symptoms, you act. So the acronym is FAST, okay? So FAST, F is for face. That's drooping of the face, okay? So you see one side of the mouth twisting or drooping down or the person starts to have saliva run out of their mouth and they can't control it. So facial droop, so that's the F. A is for arm, and this can reflect, re refer to arm drift or numbness or something suddenly drops from the person's hand, okay? So those, that's the A. Then the S is for speech. So slurred speech, decreased volume of speech, and decreased quantity of speech, decreased quantity. So they're starting to talk low and slow, and you can't understand it. Sometimes rambling speech as well. What they're saying is confused, and it's not making any sense. So if you see facial, arm, or speech signs, then the T is for time. So the time means act immediately. So those are the key things to look out for. Now strokes, you understand, can have many other features, but those are the, the ones that we say to patients, face, arm, speech, but it can have many other features. So it depends on what part of the brain is affected. So today I saw three patients that had stroke, for example. One patient, she had a what we call a large um, area of her brain being affected on the left side of her brain and that resulted in a lot of paralysis or loss of function of her body on the right side so she had an ability to move her right leg and her right arm and she had facial drooping on the right side so that is what we call almost a classic stroke and that was one type of person I saw today. The other type of person I saw today was a younger woman, and the part of her brain that was affected was called the temporal region of the brain. And the only thing that she had was that her ability to speak was affected and her ability to understand language. That's because the area of the brain that was that, that, that lost function was called Broca's area. And so she was not able to speak at first, 
and she was not able to receive language. And fortunately for her, it may have gone on to a bigger stroke, but her relatives realized immediately that she had, that she was having these symptoms and took her to get care. And then the third person I saw today had a part of the brain called the cerebellum, which is it controls um, the balance and function and coordination. And he presented with a stroke just by loss of balance. He started walking and stumbling, okay? And then he had a speech that was what we call stuttering, staccato speech, okay? And then he could not coordinate his arms and his legs. So different strokes for different folks, right? But it definitely depends on the part of the brain that's affected. But the key thing, the key takeaway is fast. The main thing you look for is there a facial difference? Is there a problem with the arms, usually on one side of the body? Or is there a speech problem? If you see those things, you act. Well, I, I do really like the fact that you actually highlighted, Dr. Williams, some of what we would consider the atypical or not so common presentations or the ones that are not really highlighted usually. We always think that a stroke comes with a motor deficit, the hand going dead or going limp, you know, or the leg dragging. But quite often it could simply be something as simple as using your ability to 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 have a gag or even a cough reflex um and 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 so it's very important that if you are aware or you're living in a household with some person you know what that person's baseline is you know how they're accustomed to speaking you know how they're accustomed to behaving and if you see anything out of the ordinary then it's important for you to act fast absolutely um go ahead yeah, I was going to say there was one other symptom that happens rarely, but it can be the presentation of a stroke, and that's called amaurosis fugax. That's where the person has sudden loss of vision, usually in one eye, okay? So you can have the stroke affecting the brain nerves that just affect that one eye. I mean, so the, 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 the blood vessels supply to that, the brain area that supplies that one eye is affected, and that, that's a type of stroke as well. Great. And so a person presents with a stroke. Are there any things that they can do while they're home on their way to the hospital or on their way to seek care? Or should they just wait until they get to the hospital to, to have care? What, what do you advise? Right. So the thing is, when you see someone acting differently or having strange behavior, you don't actually know if it is a stroke or not. Because there's a group of things called stroke mimics. So there's some things that can Absolutely. mimic the stroke. So you can't, as you know, at home, determine, well, this is a stroke. That has to be determined by a doctor. Because some types of severe migraine can present with symptoms like a stroke. Okay, we call that a hemiplegic migraine, where the person may actually lose um, the, the ability to move an arm or a leg, but it's not due to a blockage like a clot or whatever. It is just due to the, 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 the blood vessel goes into spasm, which is what a migraine is. And so you can't differentiate that. That has to be differentiated by a doctor. 
um, some types of people will also have low blood sugar. So if you're diabetic and your blood sugar goes very low, what we call hypoglycemia, then in those instances, they can also present like a stroke. Their speech may be affected. You may think it's a stroke, but it actually is low blood sugar. And all that they needed was, you know, get to care and be given um, something but to, you know, to, to, to raise their blood sugar. If they're that drowsy and speaking strange or whatever, the, the people at home should not really attempt to force anything into their mouths because you may cause them to gag and then you would have another problem, okay? Um, and then there's some sites of seizures that can present, like a stroke as well. So there are these things called stroke mimics. They're, that's not an exhaustive list that I've given there. Um, and right. those have to be differentiated from a stroke. So the most important thing is to get that person to where they can be, can be evaluated, right, to find out if it is a stroke or not, right? We usually... Um, you know, we make sure that their airway, breathing, circulation is okay, and then do a history, physical exam, evaluate their heart, make sure they're not in heart failure, or they don't have a, a that um, arrhythmia, that abnormal heart rhythm that I told you about, atrial fibrillation. And then, of course, they have to go and get a CT scan right away. So a CT scan helps us to differentiate what type of stroke is this, if there are stroke really there, you know, and, and also other investigations, blood investigations and so on, will help us differentiate that as well. Okay, so taking it a bit back to when we were speaking about the Passover or the mini stroke. So a person has a TIA or transient ischemic attack where they've had an episode because we, we know that the definition has changed recently before we would say we would, if the person's symptoms resolve within a 24 hour period, that was a TIA. Now the person has the symptoms, they resolve and they don't see anything on the CT scan. Um, but is there anything that that person who has a TIA, sh is there anything that they should do to ensure that they then don't go on to have a true stroke? Right. So again, um, a TIA should not stay at home because you don't know that it's going to be a TIA and you, don't know, it, you don't know that it's going to stay there or it's going to resolve or whatever. Um, because some people, especially the embolic type or the thrombotic type of ischemic stroke, they have what we call a stroke in evolution. So the area of the brain that is losing blood supply that clot is growing in that area slowly and slowly, but surely with time. So it may not be that you see the fullness of the stroke right away. So you don't know if it's gonna be a TIA or not. And then the embolic type stroke, you may look like you're having a TIA because the person may get better because the clot cleared, but then they may get worse again because the, another blood clot was sent off and blocked the area. So. The most important thing is to get someone to the place of evaluation. And why that's so important is because there's something we can do about a stroke um, of the ischemic type. We can do something about ischemic type strokes if they get there quickly. Um, and that is within four and a half hours, we can do what we call thrombolytic therapy. That's actually give them a drug in the vein that then goes into where the stroke is and what we call bursts the clot or causes the clot to rupture and allows blood flow to go through that area again. 
And sometimes in other places, but also um, we're working towards it here too, you can have thrombectomy, okay, which is they actually go into the area of the brain through the, through the blood vessels and actually remove the, the, the clot and allow the blood flow to happen again. So if you get there in a, in a reasonable time, those things are time dependent. So the most important thing for the relatives to do is to note when the symptoms come on. Because if there's a, this time frame is too long, then those things won't work. So the most important thing is to say, when did you notice a change? Good. So take home message there. As soon as you notice a change, move fast and note the time. Okay, great. So the person call nine one and by the way guys nine one one does work here in Barbados as well as five one one. That's our those are our emergency numbers. So okay, so the person has had the stroke. They're in the hospital. They've noticed that they have let's say um, a, a a weakness on one side of the body. Is that the end of it? Is that, do you have, do you then say, oh, well, you know, this is it for me. I have lost uh, my ability to, to move my left hand or my left leg. So I'm going to give up. Is there a life after a stroke? Oh, absolutely. Especially if you get there in time. So if you get there in time and the stroke can be treated right away, the person may actually go on to go back to their normal state, okay? Um, if this thrombolytic therapy works or the thrombectomy works, okay? Um, but then you can have people who the clot lies on its own. So depending on where the clot is, um, it may lice on its own. And although there will be some what we call residual damage to the nerves, um, it may not be so bad and they may need therapy, physical, occupational therapy, and gradually as the blood vessels um, are, because the blood vessels is, are blocked off, we have this wonderful thing that happens in the body called revascularization. So if the body can't get blood from the usual blood vessel, it starts to make new blood vessels. So that area can, can, can start to get more blood again, and that reperfusion then helps the person to recover. But if you have a large, dense area of the brain that is damaged, then that takes longer to, 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 to deal with, or longer recovery would be expected in that case. So, so also, um, we should then know that depending upon the extent of the stroke would certainly determine the presentation of the person or the family member. And so sometimes it might be good if you as a family member, let's say you, you are capable of assisting them, but sometimes it may also mean that you need to get some help. Right. So, yeah, yeah. so that's really important as well, because um, obviously now a person who's lost function, who's lost their ability to, to do certain things for themselves, needs a lot of help. Um, even those who've lost just, you know, the, the ability to speak or write or that kind of thing, that can lead to a lot of frustration on the part of the person who has this stroke. So you need a lot of care, um, a lot of supportive therapy, speech therapy, usually. If they've lost their ability to swallow properly, they can be retrained to swallow, 
okay sometimes if it's really bad you can't retrain but you know we, we do have those therapies physical therapy but also emotional support because often after stroke people get um the fear that another one is going to happen and it may lead to depression or what we call post-traumatic um, stress disorder so Great. they can get anxiety and depression following a stroke it's also well recognized as well and also important for the caregivers as well to prevent burnout because burnout is quite an often an issue that that we see occurring with caregivers in a situation where long-term care is required um they they start off you know wanting to give help and because sometimes it's a combination of one very very long hours and not being able to have respite care or simply not being educated enough in that area and and so they feel very overwhelmed and that can then lead to other issues like abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes it, it is, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. Right. Yes? Yeah. I, I haven't talked a lot about the hemorrhagic type stroke. Um, the hemorrhagic type stroke, as I said, carries a much poorer prognosis. And that's because the clot that is forming in the brain is causing pressure directly on areas of the brain. You have two types of hemorrhagic stroke. You can have an intracerebral hemorrhage, which is actually in the brain tissue itself, or you can have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and that's in the fluid surrounding the brain. Now, subarachnoid hemorrhages are usually associated with aneurysms, and a person could be born with an aneurysm, they may not know, or they can have a, they acquire an aneurysm. Again, the main thing that causes aneurysms and that causes intracerebral hemorrhage as well as arachnoid hemorrhage is uncontrolled hypertension. So hypertension and diabetes and weight loss and cholesterol control, you know, the control of these things are really, really important in stroke prevention. So, so controlling your your diabetes is not simply because you don't want to have high blood sugar and controlling your hypertension is not simply because you don't want to have a heart attack but there there appears to be a myriad of conditions that that there's a certainly an interplay between the conditions of the non-communicable diseases like diabetes hypertension high cholesterol obesity as well um that certainly has an impact on these these very varying pathologies and so it's important really to make sure that you control all of them and if you're having difficulty controlling them then certainly make sure and seek help because that's what doctors are there to do to assist you yes um one one thing that i wanted to ask what do you think the role and certain certainly we touched very little on it um the role of diet is on the prevention potentially of stroke? Okay, that's a very good question um, because um, diet affects all of the non-communicable diseases as we talked about there, okay? So things that you do over time have an effect later on in life. So, you know, we are of the fast food generation that believe that you know if I well not not food, not me not me but yes yes we have the fast food. Well, 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 not that we're eating the fast food but our generation okay 
Um, and and so those kinds of high salt, um, high uh, fat, um, lots of uh, flour, starchy types of meals contribute to the development of uh, excessive weight gain and also contribute to the development of hypertension, diabetes, and conditions such as high cholesterol, particularly if you have a family history of these things, which makes you more prone to having them as well. Okay. I see a question that we have here and I, I encourage all of our listeners, if you want to either call in or if you want to type your question into the message box, please feel free to do so. But we have a question here. It's a, the question is, can an individual have a PE, and I'm assuming you're talking about a pulmonary embolus, that then leads to a stroke or will these be generally separate events? Okay. So a pulmonary embolus is a blockage of the uh, blood vessel, um, which leads to the lungs, okay? And that has the same underlying risk factors that I talked about many times as what we see for stroke in younger people. So a pulmonary embolus is usually caused by things that cause hypercoagulability, so the blood being more sticky. Okay, so you might have immobilization, right? So you could have immobility um, after surgery on a plane um, from trauma. Um, you might be on medications like um, the female hormones, as I talked about, or you might have one of those inborn genetic things, sickle cell, etc. All of those are risk factors for a pulmonary embolus, which is blocking a major blood vessel to the lungs. But the PE itself is not usually a risk factor for the stroke. And that's just because of how the vessels are. It's just that there may be underlying factors that could be responsible for a PE, might be same underlying factors that are responsible for a stroke. What usually goes together or what you usually see together is a heart attack and a stroke or cardiac failure and a stroke. And that's because the, the, as I said, the blood is not pumping from the pump directly to, to the brain. And so the brain is losing blood supply because of the pump not working well. Once we can get the heart to working well again, though, um, and again, you use thrombolytic therapy if you get the person with a heart attack there quickly enough that we can do the same process, but, um, lice the clot in the blood vessels to the heart, then that also re reverses, in many instances, the stroke symptoms in those persons. So the bottom line is pulmonary embolus and stroke can have the same underlying risk factors, but it's not usual that one will cause the other. Okay. Are black persons at a higher risk of getting a stroke, of having a stroke? Well, the literature will say that um, that black well it depends let's just let me start with that it depends okay so it depends on uh black people where okay right so it's not just that being black makes you at risk of having a stroke um because the risk of stroke in africa okay is not as high as the risk of stroke among people who are black in the other parts of the Western world, okay? So 
You will also notice that people who survived the transatlantic slave trade, who've been taken to North America, the Caribbean, South America, etc., they also have higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, and so on and so forth. Okay, and there are lots of reasons why we suspect that there's a disparity between the rates that we see in Africa and the rates that we see in the, the transported populations. Okay. And so from that point of view, we are more at risk of having strokes because we are more at risk of having the type 2 diabetes and hypertension and um, high cholesterol, etc. So one of the risk factors um, that we, our population, uh, we constantly see all the time as well, well, both two of them would be Alcoholic intake, increased alcoholic intake, right, as well as smoking. Right. Tell us about the two of those. Okay, so I'm glad you mentioned those as well. Okay, because especially the smoking, right? Smoking is also a risk factor for hardening of the arteries. So, you know, apart from the high blood pressure, diabetes, or uh, cholesterol, obesity, the smoking is a risk factor independent of all of those. So if you've already got high blood pressure and diabetes and you smoke, so you've got a triple whammy, okay? You've got three things that are causing the hardening of the vessels. Um, um, alcohol, uh, excessive alcoholism um, causes um, liver damage, liver disease, can lead to kidney damage, can lead to, to hypertension. And, and so all of it works together to cause damaging of the blood vessels as well. So smoking by itself, though, is an independent risk factor for smoke. And so people who, for strokes, right? and for people who smoke regularly um, and, and are addicted to nicotine, they, yes, also have a very high risk of stroke as well. And so, going on. Okay, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, the other thing that can, can um, result in, in a stroke is people who use illicit drugs, so certain types of illicit drugs such as you know cocaine and and those kinds of things those people also are at risk for increased um stickiness or coagulability of the blood so you are, illicit drugs as well you you essentially read my mind because i i wanted to ask is there a difference between smoking uh cigarettes or nicotine based products versus vaping versus the smoking of marijuana is there any difference? That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, in that, nicotine is the highest risk factor. So I right. would say that nicotine is the highest risk factor. Um, does cannabis use lead directly to a stroke? Um, we, we can't say that cannabis is a direct risk factor for stroke. Okay. But again, cannabis use can lead to the use of other substances as well, okay? And that may also um, a, a cause, you know, uh, can cause stroke. Um, they, they think that there may be some propensity to stroke in cannabis users, but that is not, that is not um, a conclusive um, thing as yet. But there are studies that are looking at whether cannabis is a risk factor for stroke, but I would say at this point, 
it is inconsistent and inconclusive. Okay, I see a question here from Kenny. Can an ischemic stroke have a hemorrhagic transformation? Yes. So, so initially when the ischemic stroke occurs, you have that lovely pink brain tissue turning into some gray, dark, dying tissue. Okay? And that's the area of the brain then that loses its function. Um, as the clot starts to lice, or if you lice the clot, what happens is the, the brain starts to look for blood supply from other areas. It has a process which we call revascularization. So new blood vessels start to form very quickly as the brain, just like the heart, tries to give that area that is not being supplied anymore, more blood supply. Okay. So sometimes you can have an ischemic stroke and a person appears to be recovering, okay? And then those new vessels, because they're very fragile, they're new vessels that are forming, they're very fragile, they can also rupture. And so you have a hemorrhagic transformation of ischemic stroke. So the person appears to be getting better and then suddenly they became worse. And then when you do another CT scan, you would see that the area that looks like a, a, a that looked a few days ago like it was just a, a darkening, which is the ischemic, now has that bright white um, appearance of blood being in the area. So that's a hemorrhagic transformation of an ischemic stroke. So definitely, you could be starting off with a, a ischemic stroke and then it becomes a hemorrhagic. Great. I see another question here from Shirley. Does having a coronary stent make someone more susceptible to having a stroke? Um, I'd have to say no, because the stent is treating the blockage of the artery, okay? So the stent itself is not the risk factor, but the fact that the person had a coronary stent suggest that they have significant blockages of the arteries of the heart. So a stent is really when you have either opened back up that blood vessel or it's opened on its own, or you want to prevent that blood vessel from being completely blocked off because you tested it before the person had a heart attack, you can put in a stent to prevent, which is like a uh, like a little tube then, put it that way, to prevent that blood vessel from closing off again. So the stent doesn't necessarily cause you to be at risk for having a stroke, but the fact that a person needed a stent means that they have significant atherosclerosis, and that process that's happening in those vessels in their heart is also happening in vessels in other parts of the body, including the brain. And then, therefore, they may have a stroke later on, or they may not. But it, if, you, if you treat the underlying causes, the high cholesterol, et cetera, control the blood pressure, then that would also help to prevent a stroke. Exactly. So the person who's, who has a stroke place, they also need to be managed mm -hmm. for the, the drivers behind why they would have had the blockage to right, begin with. Right, so right, that, right. That, that atherosclerosis that was occurring, so place them on statins or, or right. other medications to make sure that you don't even have, for instance, a plaque forming around well, and, them. Right. So and also put them on medications that 
help the blood to be less sticky. Right? Absolutely. So you put them on medications like uh, aspirin or Plavix or Clopidogrel, right? That are going to cause the blood to be less sticky so that a clot would be less likely to form either in the heart or in the brain. So that's, that's the connection. Great. I have another question here. It's from Micah. Is it true to say females on oral contraceptives are at higher risk of developing strokes? And if so, why? Right. So um, I said this a little bit earlier, right? Um, yes, people who are on oral contraceptives are at higher risk of having clots in general. So whether that clot in general presents as a pulmonary embolus or whether that clot presents as a stroke, it's because the female hormone, the estrogen component, makes the blood more sticky. So if you are on oral contraceptives and you have um, poor uh, blood flow for other reasons, you are very sedentary, you're not exercising, you don't move around, that kind of thing. Then you have the double factor of blood that's more sticky plus less movement of that blood, and then that increases the risk. So majority of people will use oral contraceptives without any problems, okay? But it's if you're overweight or you don't have much exercise and you're taking oral contraceptives as well, or if you have an underlying risk factor, like one of those genetic diseases that I mentioned, and you're on oral contraceptives, then that puts you more at risk of a stroke. So I won't want you to go away saying that Dr. Williams said, oh, everybody on oral contraceptive pill will get a stroke. That's not true. The vast majority of people who are on oral contraceptive pills will not get a stroke. But if you're obese and on oral contraceptive pills, or if you're inactive or sedentary on oral contraceptive pills, then you have a higher risk of having a blood clot that can affect different parts of the body. Okay, great. At this time, I'm just going to ask, I'm going to take a quick pause to find out if, every, if anyone in the audience has a question. And then we are going to start to wrap up. Um, I... I I'm going to ask well, until we, we, we get our questions, if anyone has any more questions coming in. We, we hear of, um, of an investigation called, okay, we have a, wait, I'll pause my question and I'll take this question from the audience. Good evening and welcome. Hello, good evening. Good evening. Yes, um, I, I have a question. Um, um, in, in our society, there, there appears to be some, some correlation between stroke and diet. Mm -hmm. But, but an, 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 another very troubling factor appears to be, to be stress. And exactly what, 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 what type of, of and how, how does stress in within our society play into the the evidence of significance amounts of, of persons having strokes? And, uh, okay. Is it is, is there anything to do with the the, 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 the type of 
um, work people do. Uh, what, what exactly is this? What is the stress factor that really leads people into stroke? Okay, so thank you for that question, John D. I, I, I want to talk about how stress is mediated. So what does stress do to the body? Okay, so what we're calling stress here is really psychological stress. But psychological stress has its effects on many different parts of the body. Um, the main way that stress will be related to stroke is through elevation of the blood pressure. Okay, so if you have hypertension and you work in a high psychological stress job, then control of your blood pressure may be worse. Okay, I, I was just thinking to a, a, a head teacher that I saw today. Um, as you know, we're on lockdown. Okay, and since we're on lockdown, she's not going to school. Her blood pressure is perfect. Okay, when she's working, and she's at school, um, because of all the different psychological stresses, etc., her blood pressure can shoot up quite high. Okay? So we have to control it um, for every circumstance that she is in. So the majority will work through stress, but not all. Because psychological stress also causes what we call a pro-inflammatory state to happen in the body. And you get elevation of a, some blood markers things like homocysteine and fibrinogen and those kind of things. And those also make the blood more sticky or pro-clotting, pro hypercoagulable, right? And that's because that's one of the changes that stress produces by allowing those markers, those inflammatory markers to increase in the body. So the majority of, of, of strokes caused by high stress will be because we'll be working through um, elevations in blood pressure. Somebody gets really bad news, for example. They're prone to having high blood pressure when they're in stress situations. They get really bad news and that blood pressure shoots up. And you you didn't know that the, 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 the blood vessel there was um, was on the verge of, of, of being shut off. But when that blood pressure shoots up, now the blood cannot flow through that blood vessel well and a clot forms and they have a stroke. Or they may rupture a blood vessel as a result of the, of the high blood pressure and that's the usual thing that happens and you will have the worst kind of stroke which is called a hemorrhagic stroke as a result of the, the blood pressure shooting up. So most of it will be mediated by hypertension but constant continual stress those type of type A personalities. Some people are stressed because it's their it's in their personality. They they take on things in a certain way. They don't know how to let go of them. They don't plan time for relaxation. They don't do exercise to to release the stresses from their body. And that chronic sustained stress over time also produces changes in our bodies and releases chemicals that make the blood more coagulable. Thank you so much, Tony G. So takeaway point from that is that stress truly can be a killer yeah yeah okay we have another question here from yvette can aspirin help to prevent strokes thank you yvette for that question so i've been asked this many many times should everybody take aspirin 
to help to prevent strokes, okay? Regardless of what else you have going on. So aspirin, um, what it does, it prevents that blood from being as sticky as it normally is. And aspirin can prevent strokes, but we it also can cause bleeding, okay? So you have to weigh the prevention versus the thinning of the blood where you are at risk for bleeding, okay? So the question often asked is, should everybody take a baby aspirin? And I believe that the true answer to that is no, because the risk of bleeding is higher than the risk of getting a stroke in people with no other underlying risk factors for strokes, okay? So if you don't have hypertension, you don't have diabetes, you exercise regularly, you're not obese, you don't have any of, of uh, you know, smoke, any of those things, then aspirin is of greater risk of causing you to have a bleed, usually a stomach bleed, but any bleed from anywhere, okay? You're at greater risk of having bleeding from aspirin than preventing a stroke. But in the person who has those risk factors, who has a what we call a, a high coronary artery disease risk score, and your doctor can, can look at your risk of getting heart attack and stroke by, by asking you certain questions in the office. So if you have a high um, risk profile, then those people are often put on aspirin, what we call prophylactically to prevent them from getting a stroke. So you have hypertension, you have diabetes, um, you might have a little bit of cholesterol, you should be on aspirin along with your other medication, but it's something that has to be weighed by your doctor because aspirin, there's also other medications that you can use as stroke prevention, and it may depend on what is right for that person. So you should not put yourself on aspirin, that's the bottom line, but your doctor should put you on aspirin if you're at a high uh, coronary artery disease, I mean, a high uh, risk, so, so cardiovascular risk. Uh, disease risk, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Yvette. I, I see Tony G has another question for us. He's calling back in. Go ahead, Tony G. Yes. Um, most recently, I am hearing that... Um, the new protocols in medicine is suggesting that aspirin is is not necessarily um, something that you want to be using continually, and and I'm wondering, f f what what exactly is the science saying about aspirin use? Okay, uh, so you have. You have some things true and some things not true in that right. what has been said recently is that above a certain, so above the age of 70, okay, right. you, you then have to weigh the risk versus the benefit. So is it beneficial to a person to be on aspirin because of the risk of bleeding if they're over 70, right, um, compared to the risk of stroke prevention? So whereas we used to put everybody on aspirin, no, that's why I said your doctor has to put you on aspirin and not you, okay? So if a 45-year-old who has high coronary artery disease risk and they have, um, they have 
hypertension and diabetes and so on and so forth, and they are at high risk of getting a stroke, etc., that person can safely be put on aspirin, right? But what recently was said, what has changed recently, is that the older you get, the risk of a, of a bleed from aspirin becomes greater than the risk of prevention of a stroke or heart attack. So yes, it's true that something has changed recently, but it's not across the board that everybody should stop taking aspirin, right? Because it very much depends on other factors like your age. So in, in those circumstances, then the it would be left up to the doctor to make that determination as to who should be off or who should be on. That's what I'm saying. So, so there are lots of things that you have to weigh. Um, should this person be on aspirin? Should this person be on clopidogrel? Should this person, um, if you had a previous stomach bleed, you're not going to be on aspirin? What's the age of the person? What's the actual risk? We can actually calculate the risk for the person and to make a determination as to whether or not they should be on aspirin. So, so all these people that say, oh, just take an aspirin, um, it, it's really something that you need to discuss with your doctor. Thank you. And thank you very much. And we are actually out of time. I want to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Williams so very much for coming this evening and really enlightening our listeners. And I want to thank you, our listeners, who have participated in the call-in section. Once again, I encourage you to follow us on both Podbean and Anchor and join us next week on First Say Chats by Dr. G, Closing the Gap. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. You're welcome. Glad to be here and thank you for helping me to share this important topic. Thank you.